Welcome to Blended, the podcast from McGraw-Hill. I'm your host, Wes Hallam, and today I'm delighted to be joined by John Coburn Evans, who is the founder of Team Coaching Boutique, the author of Coaching for Cultural Transformation, and host of the Sweet Spot Safari podcast. We're going to be talking in this episode all around academia, coaching and cultural transformation, and resilience of uh, students and how to how to develop that. So, John, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here. Thank you very much, Wes. Oh, no worries at all. So, let's jump straight into it to begin with. Uh, obviously, you're um, you're very experienced in in change management, in cultural development, and, and change. When we first started talking, you wanted to highlight some 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 positives and some negatives around around the world of academia and how that actually functions in terms of cultural transformation and change so tell me a little bit more about about what you were thinking yeah i think that's it so because you know we will cover obviously the working world as well but i think academia is a great place to start because you know first of all we all start at school now of course not everybody goes through tertiary education but a lot do you know these days which is a good thing and you know traditionally tertiary education has been the transition for a lot of people from a school life to a working life and it's there to prepare them Clearly, you know, it's there to prepare them academically, but also socially and thinking about the world of work. And I was reflecting the other day, having just had one of my uh, children just complete university last year, another one just started a course recently, is how the courses have changed since I was there, for instance. So, you know, I was, I'm of a vintage that I did my degree between 1982 and 1986, and it was extremely academic. I've an engineering background before I moved into sort of leadership and transformation. And what, what really struck me was, although I enjoyed the course, is when I started working up in the northeast of England, uh, worked alongside some great guys, and they'd done some sandwich courses, you know, which is like you know, the combination of work experience and, um, uh, and academia. And actually, they were a lot better prepared than I was for work. I have to admit, my early days of work were quite frightening because... Yes, I knew all the theory, the mathematics, the equations, but I didn't really know how to problem solve, right? We'd not really gone through, and we'd, you know, we'd done economics and all the other supporting topics as well as engineering, but they were really good. Their, their application of engineering, you know, in the short term was better than mine. Having said that, it didn't take me too long to catch up because I learned from them. So I think as well as academia, and we'll come on to this a bit later on, I think the early years of work, are very powerful in terms of how it shapes individuals and teams and everything else. So I've been looking at my uh, my daughter's course um, recently. She does a vacation course. She's doing vet science. And I was really heartened to see some of the topics that they brought in. First of all, things like they've done a lot of psychology. You know, they talk a lot about psychological safety, which I know at the moment is a huge topic, you know, and toxicity in the work, workplace um, and lots of other things. They're obviously doing, you know, team assignments, which is great, of course. There are slight downsides to that. It goes to your degree, especially if you've got a few laggards there. But these things are, are, are really moving things on and better than when I started. Although I think there's some challenges as well. You know, if you look at hybrid working, we've just had COVID, for instance, and a lot of students have had to study, you know, including mine through COVID and working remotely. So you lose, you know, you lose that sort of human bond and become more remote. So I think that's a challenge, although hybrid working is, is here to stay. And it's very, very important, you know, and I think 
you know, without getting into a deeper debate on this, you know, there is debate in, in universities at the moment around, you know, free speech and, you know, you know, are they becoming echo chambers, you know, and have we got, you know, too much of consistency of thought, whereas traditionally universities were very much the, the bastions of free speech. So I think it's a multifaceted, it's a multifaceted thing. And I think the trick to success in this is open dialogue and people asking questions, you know, uh, and, and, and asking the right questions and looking at, you know, data stratification um, on a wider topic of resilience, because I know that's something else you wanted to cover, Wes, is I was just reading a wonderful book by Nassim Taleb. If people know him, he wrote Black Swan. He's written a whole series of other books called In Concerto, and I'm lucky enough to read, you know, uh, Skin in the Game and, and Fooled by Randomness. But Antifragile's really good, because I thought about it yesterday, is that, you know, when we look at, again, particularly, you know, determination, tenacity and, and, and doing the right things and, and building ourselves up. In one of the chapters, he, he runs a wonderful example of two brothers based in London who are taking home a similar sort of pay. I think it was about £4,000 a year when he wrote the book. And one of them was actually an HR manager in a, in a corporate bank in London. And the other guy was a black heavy, right? And they both lived on the same street. And the perception was that the job for the HR manager was more resilient, right? You know, because it was a steady income, steady salary. Of course, one day this HR manager, you know, with downsizing and downsizing, lost their job, right? And then, of course, the black cabbie, of course, kept his job. Now, his fares are going up and down all the time, you know, and he's having to think on his feet around where he gets the next fare from. But in reality, the point that Nassim makes is actually the job of the cabbie is way more resilient than, in fact, he even calls it anti-fragility, which is, you know, a topic for another day, more resilient than the guy who is subject to a black swan event, you know, the HR manager, because the guy who's the cabbie, he's not only having to think about where he's fed, he's thinking on his feet all the time, which is keeping his brain active and everything else. So I think, in summary, it's, I think the academia is a good space. I think there's opportunities for improvement. Um, but I also think there's, there's complementary stuff from the world of work. Mm. And if you look at some stats, I think, ooh, from a, a few years back, around management training, for instance, there's something like 80% of people who've left work or graduates go into management roles without any formal management training. Certainly in the UK, it's slightly different, I think, in places like Germany, which is a huge opportunity. You know, I grew up, we were lucky enough to have even, not just graduate student sponsorship schemes, but graduate training schemes, you know, where graduates were on a two-year sort of probation and pilot for a period of time, which got them to learn other stuff apart from their core functioning skills. So I think there's some huge opportunities there. Hopefully I've not that's not too much in one go there, uh, Wes. No, no, no. It's it. You, you, you touched on an awful lot of things that I find really, really interesting. There. So, I mean, my my wife happened to to benefit from from a. She was doing a graduate scheme, that, but I remember when we we sort of both graduated at the same time, and yeah, the the official grad schemes that gave you that clear progression were were very few and far between, um, and it, it's. Yeah, it seems like there is something of a of a gap there, and I know that our the universities that we work with work incredibly hard to try and get those those business connections and those links and that kind of throughput of of, of graduates out into those places. But it can be a really you know there's only a certain number of of companies of the size that hire enough people each year to to kind of make that work. Um, I was one thing you mentioned there that I thought was really interesting um was 
when you're talking about hybrid working and we were i was having another conversation with 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 electra who was talking about the fact that the pandemic completely you know changed a load of stuff in, in education and we're on now in this hybrid working environment and they he was saying that it's changed students his students into being much more independent about where they get information from all they want to know all they they, they want to be guided by this kind of hierarchy the the, the, the right. institutional figures and things like that but you know information availability is is has never been more prevalent it's very easy to go and find out information from them do you think that this kind of this move into into a more hybrid environment does it pose some risks for the way that we interact with each other, the way that we manage those kind of interpersonal relationships? Because, you know, for example, I work from home, you know, every every day of the month, apart from one, when I go when I go in to go and see my colleagues. So I'm going to have a very different relationship from the people who are in that office with, with other things. Do you think it has a, a possible detrimental effect if we allow, say, for example, students to be as remote as they want to be? I think it potentially does. And I think, again, it's a multifaceted issue. So I think there's there's two elements to this. First of all, there's the social side, which is really important because discussing things with people is what they call in the working environment, the water cooler chats, right? Can be really, really powerful because people can explore. I think the danger of the hybrid working, although I totally agree with you that the independence factor uh, for the students is really powerful now in terms of sourcing information, is that, because it become, the danger becomes too transactional, right? And, and in, in his words, I need to do a, an assignment. I need this piece of information for that assignment. I will go and search it where it is, find what I need, and then move on without a necessary debate. And it's interesting now, for instance, some of the learning and development platforms, in fact, I've, I've got one at the moment, is they call it social learning now. So you've got these micro learning journeys, which you'll be familiar with, you know, with these mini missions and assignments. But you can activate social learning. So in other words, once you've done the module, you can actually share your thoughts and reflections and actually encourage that even through the hybrid you know, environment. So I think that's very important. But I think the other danger of hybrid working um, for students as well, I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole AI thing and chat GPT, of course, which is very much of the moment, is, is, is source checking. You know, they... You know, I, I never did it at university. I did engineering. So my, my life was a calculator and a slide rule, right? You know, we didn't really study papers. You know, people with more arts and social science degrees did a lot of that. And people were, you know, trained in how to look at Harvard, re- you know, referencing systems, for instance, and checking sources and, and all that sort of stuff, which I think is really important. I do worry sometimes, and, and maybe it's an irrational fear on my part, is whether people don't check the sources of their data enough. I think... In the days of going to the library and reading the book and you have these long references, people would do that. You know, and then there's the whole issue, of course, with anything that's electronic is copy-paste errors. I, I remember this going back into the, the late 80s when I started work. And in those days, draftsmen used to draw piping and instrumentation diagrams and layouts with pencil on huge A0 boards, which was great. And actually, they made less mistakes than when we moved to the digital age. When we moved to CAD, and then it became a problem. I find more errors because... People would check their own work with pencil, but when people are moving things around digitally, it is so easy. You know, I've done it myself recently, but I even did it myself today, is copy-paste error. So I think there's a whole dynamic. I think there's the social side of it, which is really important. You know, the benefit of the rich conversation you get with other people, because I think 
in a hybrid world, you won't. It's not that you don't want it, by the way. So let's be clear. I'm sure the students desire it. You know, there's a difference between desire and, and what they're pushed to do because that's what the system's sort of telling them to do. You know, you know so there's that. I think there's, I think there's the information sources and I think there's the social side of it. So I think if, if that makes sense, that's just my, my take on it at the moment. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense. I think um, everyone is, is still kind of feeling their way, their, their way through this. And, and, you know, as with lots of things that, that have happened in the past sort of 10 or 15 or 20 years with the kind of uh, the much more electronic and, and online age is that we haven't had a huge amount of time or, or, or study of what those impacts are, you know, our traditional hierarchy analysis you know we can track some of those back you know 100 200 300 you know, to the foundations of businesses but with some of these of you know how does a there's not a huge amount of empirical evidence around how a slack channel impacts um you know team interoperability other than quite surface level stuff so i think it it it's a really interesting um space to be in i think previously my gut instinct had always been that if you were away from the office that would normally be either you are permanently away so i used to work in a sales in a sales team and be out of the office all the time um and then i'd see these quite close interpersonal relationships between people who worked within our office at the time you know because they're sat by the same person every day and talking to them and they you find out an awful lot more about somebody when you just exist in the same space as them but i think now you know and, and sort of back then I was the anomaly of being out on the road all the time and the majority of people were were in all the time. Whereas now I think the default is to not necessarily be in an office, you know, for 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 you know, that it's almost a requirement now for particularly younger employees or people just just entering the job market, is that flexibility is seen as a is almost seen as a, it's a necessity. It's not a I want to go and work a nine to five in an office. It's a I want to choose to go into the office when it's helpful for helpful to me. Which I think is just it's just an interesting thing to, to yeah consider. I think it, it, I think you know you raise a really good point I think what we have to be very careful of in this is polarity and falling into a polar trap where you know home office good office from you know going into the office is bad because of costs and everything else that goes in or vice versa I, there's definitely a blended solution here and I think it's also down to the individuals too so. You know, people have talked about the difference between introverts and extroverts. And obviously, it's, it's not about um, introvert and extroversion. It's not about being the, you know, the class comedian, for instance, or the office clown or whatever you want to call it, right? It's about where you take your personal energy from. So introverts, you know, take their personal energy from within. You know, they are very internally motivated and very introspective, which is good. Extroverts take their uh, energy uh, from other people on the social scene. You know, they doesn't mean they're not driven, by the way. Again, that's another confusion. Is, and I think that's really important. So you have to manage the introverts and the extroverts together, right? Recommending, you know, and, and also recognizing rather that, that there may be some core hours as well because people have to overlap, you know? And if you've got to work as a team, yes, you can hand stuff off electrically, electronically, but there still has to be some discussion and debate and there has to be an overlap. And I know, for instance, when I started, started working in corporate consulting after my operational career, and one of the biggest stresses we found with big teams was, that you find, you know, biorhythms, people are morning people or night people. It's like students, you know, I'm sure. Whereas you experience that. Some people will work until midnight, one o'clock in the morning, right? And then go to bed. I have to say that wasn't me. 
you know, I'm very much, he's once I've had my dinner, you know, I've been to the library, I want to go to bed and sleep. But if I needed to work, I could get up at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning to, to meet the objective. And it was quite funny. It was quite stressful in consulting teams where you had to work together on things, but you also had to work individually on, on different, you know, work streams. And I'll, I'll never forget having led consulting teams. One of my first questions when I ever put a team together is, are you a morning person or are you a night person? Because that's very important because what we don't want to do is stress you unnecessarily, but we're going to have to find a way of working, if that makes sense. My apologies there. My, uh, my, my cats have started to yowl because it's the, it's their food time. So I thought a, a delicate, um, a delicate close of the door might, might, might not be. Uh, okay. Well, I just say my postman doesn't turn up because then the dog will start to <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's quite right. One of the many perils of working from home is that, that there are infinitely more distractions. I feel that you can't, you also can't really ignore, um, somebody coming and knocking at the door. You're, you're mm. sort of stuck there. Um, so we actually we sort of be talking about this sort of transition from um, this transition into that into that world of work, and obviously the the, the people who listen to this podcast are, are very very focused at the at the start of somebody's skill development journey. So how do how do they prepare students or equip students with the skills they need to go to you know immediately into the world of work? But you were mentioning earlier that. There's actually different facets to this kind of skills and development. You're saying that that it's it, there are some skills that you can't really develop when you're when you're younger, or some that you're better at developing when you're older. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think yeah, it all comes down to environment. I think you know, as we said earlier on, I think you know, for a lot of people, tertiary education is a transition between school life and, and, and work life, and academia is doing a good job in preparing them. You know, we talked about psychological safety and, and teamwork. But there are other elements to it. I think maybe I mentioned, you know, things like office politics, you know, team dynamics in the different situations. Working, you know, if you're working on a course, generally you'll be working with people in your own set and in your own course, right? You might be a subgroup. You go into a big corporation or a large organization, you know, you could be an engineering team working with a procurement team, for instance, or a finance team. So, and, and they all have their own ways of working. So there's all that sort of, you know, inter-team dynamics but also intra-team dynamics you know and there's other things that, that that you know necessarily you can only learn on the job so a good one is ethics for instance you know people can be taught ethics for instance and it's very very important these days you know at university and schools or colleges or wherever but you're only going to learn about ethics through you know experience and i know you know i've had a couple of times through my engineering career where i've been put up with some really difficult ethical dynamics you know, in management positions, right? You know, as a young engineer, you know, making decisions around safety versus productivity, which is the classic one in, in you know, if you work in the chemical industry, there's this constant tension between productivity. And by the way, you can do both, but there is a tension between productivity, you know, and safety and, and doing the right things or expedience and safety. You know, we have to look at, you know, some of the disasters, you know, Piper Alpha, you can go back to all sorts of incidents, um, you know, Flixborough, et cetera, Bhopal, you name it. And, so, and, and that's the challenge. And you, you only learn that by, by doing and, and, and guiding and, and mentoring. And that's why I think mentoring is so important in organisations, having somebody to look up to um, who, who's done it before and can actually guide you in the right decision-making process. So I'm a fellow of the Institute of Chemical Engineers as well as you know, my coaching qualifications and other stuff. 
And I do mentor young graduates and students um, through their careers. And it's, it's really important to try and help them because of the decision making. Um, I think the other thing is that having a professional institution, if you're lucky enough to work in a vocational, you know, engineering, medicine, law, et cetera, where you've got those professional institutions, they can provide a wonderful umbrella in terms of support so you make the right decisions. I, I do genuinely worry for other people who may be faced with ethical decisions um, and they don't have the opportunity to, to have learned, you know, because nobody's there to tell you about it, you know, if they don't have the right mentor. And I think one of specific, you know, very deep um, situation that happened to me was back in the, in the late 90s where we'd had a fatality on site, unfortunately, and a horrible fatality. Um, a week after, I decided to do the ethical thing and not sign a permit, which I thought was inappropriate. I won't go into the details. But I look back after the fatality, which was horrible. Nobody wants to go through fatality work. It's horrible for the individual, horrible for the family. But, you know, when you get in, and, and the real consequences, you, you, you get investigated by the HSE. They shut the plant down. You get interviewed. You have to go to court. And there's a whole load of other stuff, you know, including dealing with the family and going to funerals and all this sort of stuff. But I remember, you know, when I was faced with that ethical decision, I sat back and I thought, what really matters here, right? Doing the right thing and also your personal reputation. So rather than thinking about the business, because the business has its own pressures, right? And it was a very good business, by the way. It was a very ethical business. I was able to detach and think about almost the equivalent of my Hippocratic Oath in the Institute of Chemical Engineers, which was very clear. Don't take a decision, right, that can have a negative impact on safety, the environment, people, your reputation, etc. And it was, it was good for me to have that reference point. Now, what would have happened? I don't know. What if I hadn't had that reference point? What if I hadn't been a trained engineer and stuff? What if I'd just come along and, and was doing a job for whatever reason? Who knows, you know? Because we're all fallible at the end of the day, we're all human. So I think there is a, a thing around ethics where I think it's really, really important to find mechanisms for young leaders and managers and people who are going to progress into those roles where they really understand about ethics. And I don't necessarily mean on a training course, because we all know with training courses that you know we learn some good stuff and then you know within two weeks we've lost eighty percent of what we've learned, right? It's, the, it's, it's it, as Nassim would say, it's skin in the game, right? It's understanding what the risks are, where the critical thinking is, and having somebody to guide you. So, you know, I, I was really pleased that, that that mentoring program existed. And that's one of the reasons why I still do it. And I want to put back into the profession, if that makes sense. No, that, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. It, you are, you're very right in that, yeah, it's that experiential learning that is often the, the greatest teacher because you know you have to with everything you have to make a mistake before you know you've done something wrong sometimes and unfortunately some of those big ethical dilemmas that somebody might be faced with you you don't really know you've made a mistake until until it's too late so i'm i'm glad that there was that that framework around for you but you are you are right there are lots of people who well hopefully most people get insulated from having to make a serious ethical decision or, 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 or deal with that as part of their job and not be part of that framework. But I can only imagine it must be, you know, I, I've not really been faced with anything, anything on that scale kind of before, but 
then again, I don't I don't work in an industry where there is a body like that. So I don't know how I would have how I would have been able to react had I not had some framework like 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 you had. Yeah, and I think it depends on what you do, as you say. You know, I mean, obviously, people like you know doctors are dealing with these sort of things on a daily basis or even an hourly basis. You know, so that's sort of the real tip of the iceberg. You know, at the top end of it, whereas other people who are in more you know very important but administrative type roles are in, in a totally different position. Um, I'm, I'm unlikely to get any life or death decisions working in publishing. So, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, I bet you know. Again, you know, I bet Matt Hancock never thought you know he was going to be faced with those type of dilemmas. You know, whatever you think about it, you know, you know when he was health secretary because he didn't know there was a COVID pandemic coming and all the other stuff that was you know. Come on, he probably thought about you know designing departments and moving pieces of paper around and you know doing what he had to do to to keep the machine running etc so i think there's all sorts of things the other thing that, that, that intrigued me i was listening to another podcast the other night by a guy called rory sutherland who's a, a podcaster um, and also i think he's co-chairman of a huge marketing agency called Ogilvy. and he was talking about again it's quite interesting this whole experience versus the the functional training idea you know which we get university, you know, he said, it, it can be a bit odd sometimes uh, when, you know, with some very high end degrees, for instance, and stuff, people are measured by that, you know, later on in the careers, when in reality, they did that 30, 40 years ago. And yeah, they've got 30, 40 years of experience. You know what, you know, what carries the weight, which I thought was quite just a, quite an interesting perspective to look at it. And I guess what also I find interesting is, and again, I think this is important for the world of work, is one of my favorite expressions is that past performance is no predictor of future greatness. So that's sort of counterintuitive in terms of the experience argument. But what I think that means is that if people are bright enough, right, and they've got the desire to learn and self-learn, which is what you alluded to at the head of the conversation around, you know, the independence of the students, then that's probably more important than past experience. Because, you know, we're seeing this, all this stuff with CVs now, where people have got these very long CVs, or even, dare I say, you know, manipulated CVs for want of a better word, right? Well, does that really matter? If you're putting them into a critical role, which could be a creative role or innovation, does experience really matter? No, actually, what really matters is, you know, your attitude, your creativity, your willingness to, to learn, you know, and in teams, probably one of the most important things these days is self-awareness, you know? Uh, having a level of confidence, but also being humble, right? You know, and that comes with experience as well. So I think there's this continuing dichotomy uh, between all these different um, concepts, but there is a sweet spot in the middle. And, and I think this is where self-awareness and self-learning are so important because people who who are taught that or, or, or have it naturally, because some people have it naturally, you know, some of the great leaders and gurus have that, is we'll be in a way better place. And that's the one thing I've learned through my personal journey is that I feel a way better person once I really got to tap into my self-awareness, you know, and, and got to a more, you know, away from transactional space into transformational space. Because again, you talked about transformations in, in, in company cultures, which I, I can talk a bit about later on, but does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it, it does. The, um, it, it's just, it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating subject i've got about i've got about nine million questions that i just feel like i just want to keep tumbling out um so tell you what let, let, let's count you were talking about that sort of um transformation in, in cultural uh, it's sort of in corporate culture what do you what 
what is happening at the moment? What do you see as being sort of common trends within that within that space? Well, I think we're going through we've been through a number of phases. You know, first of all, a few years ago there was the flattening of the organisation, uh, which I think was very important because we were very hierarchical, you know, and probably layered. But again, I think there's a limit to that as well. I think there is a certain level of hierarchy that is still required um, because it's still related to accountability. So, you know, when I when I get involved with large organisations, which I tend to do, you know, we always work from the top down because you can't get away from the pyramid. And the, and the reason for that is, is because if you're going to make a change, quite often we find that the very senior leaders, they want the change because they have the resources, they've got the vision, they understand what the business, the new business models are. And they buy into it. Um, but it's translating that down through the organization, which, by the way, the Japanese are extremely good at. You know, if you look at their lean methodology and what Toyota and the other companies have done, they've been amazing at this because what they will do, they will push responsibility and accountability down the pyramid as far as they dare on the understanding. And there's two big caveats. One, there's a quality assurance process in place. And two, the people are trained. So they fully understand what they're letting themselves in for. And quite often what I see is where cultural transformations fall down is poor communication between the levels, particularly around what the vision and the objective is and translating. You know, there's a whole three, you know, Chinese whispers, you know, how things get translated as it goes down the organization. Unfortunately, that is real. Or you'll hit a clay layer, right? Sometimes people call it the middle management clay, clay layer, you know, where people just don't want to either change or whatever, or they don't get it, or from one better world, they feel threatened because they've you know, they've got themselves a level of responsibility and a level of status in an organization through hard work and they don't want to lose it, you know, which is quite interesting because when, when, when you also look at right at the bottom of the organization, you know, people they have a perception that people say they're resistive. In my experience, they're not. Because most of the time, as long as you're not talking about mass redundancies or huge changes in, in welfare and, and, and pension, most people want to move on because... Usually when you're looking at, let's say, a cultural transformation for productivity reasons, which really goes across the board, whether you're in the creative space or in the manufacturing space, is most people want to buy into it because most people want to make their job easier. So anything that will help them make their job easier, they'll do. But the, 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 the real issue usually happens in the middle. Now, and the reason why that's important that you need to get over that is because actually it's middle management that are the engines of an organization, Right. They're getting it from above and below, and they're the ones that have to translate it and almost make it become real. So these are sort of the, the challenges and the dichotomies of, of what, what goes on in organizations. So I think that's one element that is a challenge. And again, you know, that's why I think there needs to be more focus on those type of skills, um, you know, as well as psychological safety and humility and self-awareness and stuff is, you know, in terms of how to make things happen for organizations. I think the other area which I see, and again, I've mentioned this in the book, it, 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 things go wrong is having a sustainability model. Quite often we say people declare victory too early. You know, it used to be that cultural transformation, you know, you'd have a five-year strategic plan and then you'd do it and then you'd do it again another five years. And then, but by that time, you never actually completed the original one because something had changed or the CEO had changed and then there was a change of direction. Now it is a, it's almost a, a continual evolution right you know it's continual improvement rather than you know step changes having said that sometimes you have to have a revolution to have the evolution but to going back to the point where it fails is that you know and the great example of this is the john cotter h stage 
you know, change management model, you know, you know, which he, you know, he developed in 1996, I think it was, is, you know, the first two stages are, you know, have a burning platform. And what that means is that's an intent, right? That's a, a drive. That's a reason, a raison d'etre to, to have the change. Because if you don't have the burning platform, there's no point in having it, you know. And sometimes people want to do change for change's sake, which makes no sense, you know. That there has to be got a, a you know, good, business, solid, valid business reason or cultural reason to make a change. Step one. Step two is, you know, create the guiding coalition. That's having like-minded people around you. Um, and then steps three, four to, to eight effectively are implementation and closeout. And quite often what happens is that when you come to the closeout, people aren't looking at sustainability, right? Mm. They're not looking at what the models are. Have they put the right things in place for people to self-learn, for things to self-develop, to make sure things happen? Now, of course, the challenge these days is that sustainability thing is no longer fixed. It's dynamic. So you're almost looking at cultural things. So if you're looking at the sustainability model, it's have we got the right culture in place to make sure that not only can we maintain this, but we can develop it and move it forward? Um, you know, I've seen I've seen all sorts of organisations fail at different levels. Quite often, it's normally after stage two, because the euphoric stage is you know the burning platform and the guiding coalition, and then when you get into implementation, that's when you hit the treacle and things don't always happen because people don't necessarily either have the time or the will to get it done. You pile on top of that, and I've seen it in huge organizations at the moment, what I call initiative overload. You know, I've seen it in massive organizations where, you know, they've got too many initiatives and people just can't cope with it. They physically can't cope with change in, you know, 10 different areas, you know, strategic change in 10 different areas. You know, you have to think about the human elements of this. And the way I always do the reference, you know, you, you leverage off your talented people, you know, because that's the most important top. But you also have to be cognizant of the people who are not so talented, but still very vital in the organization. Because if you leave those behind, then you've got a major problem. And again, that's where the Japanese methodology, the Lean methodology is so good, because their whole idea is we won't leave people behind. And that doesn't mean that people don't move on into different roles, but the whole idea is you go as a team, because actually it's not first past the post, it's the last past the post that makes the difference, if that makes sense. It does, it's, it does make sense. It's, so it, it's, a, it's a really interesting area of conversation because when you're talking about that kind of hierarchy and how, how that change moves through, um, and you said, you know, the, the, one of the big shifts has been this flattening of hierarchy. I'm sure most people listening to this podcast will, will reluctantly acknowledge that um, higher education institutions have been and continue to be quite slow to move they are quite rigid they are not necessarily as agile as a business would be um they're big big inbuilt hierarchical structures with with kind of both kind of managerial power organizational power budgetary power there's there's a lot of there's a lot of rigid structure in there and one of the in, in fact, when, when you're talking about that kind of initiative overload, one of the universities that we've worked with quite closely is run much more, it's one of quite a big university, but it's run much more like a business. And you can see that there's a cultural challenge for people when they come from another, um, come from another more kind of traditional hierarchical university and move into this one where the pace of change is just so fast. 
it's you know normally a you know any kind of large change at university will take five years to be approved whereas this particular university is you know it'll be approved in three months and then you've got six months to it uh, to implement it and they'll have four of them overlapping at the same time and people get huge burnout when they come from another institution because they're not used to that uh, they're not used to that shift um but one of the one of the challenges we often see and i'm sort of people who people who listen to this podcast are normally sort of they're they're, they're digitally minded instructors so they're looking at what's next what's what's coming forward that they're always looking to kind of progress and develop and one of the challenges that they often bump up against is that big rigid structure and that 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 hierarchy of people above them who are able to or have the power to enable or, or block developments for them don't don't see uh, don't see things in the same way don't have things at the same level how how obviously you're not going to be able to fix everything everything in a in a two second snip but how would you coach say a, an individual who is struggling with that with that lack of agency that they have within their own thing because of this hierarchical structure is there is a a quick tip you could give them as to how to go and how to go and change that well i think you know the obvious one is self-awareness, but that's easy to talk about and not so easy to do. So I'll leave that for the moment. But what I'm very interested in around is the whole thing of mentoring and reverse mentoring. So for instance, EY instigated a program a few years ago of reverse mentoring, which is you know, where the younger people can mentor the old people. You know, an intergenerational diversity is is a huge thing now. And in fact, I remember interviewing oh, probably back in 2014 the head of the the VP for the head of HR of Unilever in the Netherlands. And I asked him, you know, in fact, we were doing a cultural transformation, uh, which was in a specific area. And I just asked him, I said, you know, which is your biggest hot button? What keeps you out of bed at night? And he said, intergenerational diversity, without a doubt. He said, if I look at the organization, you know, we've got 18 year olds going up to 65 year olds, right? For nowadays, that will probably even possibly five different generations. So I think, I think, first of all, I think the problem is huge. I think in, if you look in academia, um, there will be their, their different levels. Um, but it's, it's also, I think, if you're honest, if you look at uh, where, where, where corporations have got an advantage over academia, is you know you touched on the commercial imperative, which is really important. I think I personally believe commercial imperatives do actually drive a lot. You know, it's, it's it's okay to talk about money and commerce. That's a good thing. You know, so so I think what you find is in very agile corporations is there is less status. You know, there might be hierarchy, but there's less status. People tend to have to work together. But I think you know, to your example, the agile university, the one that does things really well is I would imagine there will be less status oriented. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm guessing based, you know, it's almost implicit because I think what I have learned in organizations that, that where things fail in my corporate life is that status, you know, or, or shall I say is being overly um, connected to status, I'll use my words carefully here, becomes a blocker and a hurdle for change. So that's really important. So if I was mentoring something, first of all, I'd look at reverse mentoring. So I, depending on which side of you are, you know, if you're a very experienced person at the, a more senior level in terms of age and experience, I'd be saying, well, share your experience around the things we touched on earlier, around ethics, around values, around difficult conversations, difficult decision-making. If you're young right, or younger, 
and you're going the other way, I'd be saying the topics I would be using would be things like self-awareness, right? You know, uh, question yourself around status, question yourself around humility, right, and confidence. And that's the beauty about coaching because you can broach those conversations in a one-to-one. Those things shouldn't happen in a public environment because it's, it's not a place that's psychological safety. You know, We can talk about psychological safety in teams, which is huge when we look at agile teams. And by the way, psychological safety is absolutely critical for agile te- uh, teams. You know, There's a paper by Laura Delzano who was done in the HBR back in 2017. It's absolutely critical because that's what enhances diversity and stuff. So there's no, there's no doubt about it. But also, I would say one-to-one, I think, psychological safety. So there has to be this sort of trust element between people. And that means, you know, if you've got trust, then status becomes less of a problem to me. You, you, you know, so you, you've, you've got a trustful environment, then, then people can talk openly. It's about how old you are and what your background is. You can have those more challenging conversations because you're going to do it in a, a constructive way. And, and quite honest, quite often what I find is where when these sort of situations arrive, um, people confuse the difference between um, confrontation and conflict. And I think if people can put that in their, in their minds, it's a great way, if you can segment those in a way that it, it will help you. So the way I look at it, it's okay to confront an issue. It's not okay to have unnecessary conflict with a person. So if you have that mindset, if you can, and, and it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, by the way, if both parties can do that, you're going to have a constructive conversation. There may be some tension in it, but there's nothing wrong with constructive tension. Constructive tension is positive. That's how you challenge people, you get ideas and things flow in the right way. So I think, I think understanding the difference between confronting an issue and conflict is really important. But I think the other thing which would be really powerful, again, on both sides of things, is the concept of non-judgment. You know, and people talk a lot about that. Day. I was very lucky um, in my coaching school back in IPEC back in 2014. They, they stressed non-judgment very powerful, uh, you know, very strongly rather, very powerfully. And if that's okay, I'll just indulge you in a very short story, which was one of my big learnings. Was, so I went to module two in London. You know, it's a very intensive course. You know, we arrive on a Thursday night. You know, it's a long weekend. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday from seven to seven. And a great experience. And I remember at the end of um, module two, we had a wonderful coach come over from New Jersey, the US, who was our, our, our main tutor. And he, he left at the end of module two. He said, you know, guys, the one thing you're going to have to learn about is non-judgment. You know, that's the most important thing. And you can look up non-judgment academically. And it goes back to the, the experiential learning again versus sort of the academic piece. And I remember getting on the train home from Liverpool Street back up to, to Norwich. And I really... I really got stressed about it because I sat and thought, intellectually, I understand the power of non-judgment. But practically, I'm not so sure I do. You know, I'm still in an engineering world, an operational world. I'm making judgments all the time. That's what engineers do. That's what doctors do. That's what professionals do all the time. They're always making judgments. And it started to burn my brain. So what I did was I actually reached out to the admissions tutor, a lovely lady called Mira, who is based in um, San Diego, in California. And... Um, and I, I sent her a note um, and I said, look, Mira, can we do a Skype? Um, because I've got a question for you. And she said, yeah, no problem at all. I've come back from Motu. So we went on to the Skype and I said, look, Mira, you know, I love the course. It's great. And I said, this is my issue, right? 
I get intellectually the, 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 the point of non-judgment, but I'm really struggling with it because I have to judge things in every day. And she just turned around to me and she said, you know, that's a really powerful question, John. You know what, John? She says, I think you'll get it. I think you'll get it. And that was it. And she said, great to see you, John. Uh, you've got any other questions, we'll come back. And that was just, it was like a two or three word answer. And initially I came off the call and been a bit deflated and disappointed because of course, what I was looking for, I was looking for the transactional answer. What I hadn't done was actually at that point in time, it did come. I'd made the coaching connection about the transformational answer. And the point she'd make was, go away and reflect and it will come to you. I have absolute faith in you that it will come to you, which is the experiential learning bit. And what I realized was that later, you know, literally within a day, I had this huge aha moment, which was, it's okay to judge situations, which is what I do in my work life, you know, situational awareness, but not judge people. And that just transformed my life from a point, it was from just that simple things probably had one of the biggest impacts in my life. Because now I can look at situations each time and thinking, what's actually going on here, right? Actually, it's the situation. It's not the person. You know, we're too quick to judge. Quite often, you know, you know, we look at it in politics, we look at it everywhere. We'll judge somebody and say, you know, they're behaving inappropriately. They're an idiot or, you know, to use language of that effect. But actually, it's not. What it is, is it's the situation that's driving them to behave that way. And once you can make that sort of um, disconnection, connection, whichever way you want to look at it, life becomes so much easier. It becomes so much easier because when you can look at a situation and you can make, you can analyze it and say, well, actually, that's, a, that's okay. I know why that's happening because this is going on in the background or this could be going on in the background. And that person is not doing the wrong thing. What they're doing is making the best decision at the time. And then you can have a conversation, right? Then you can go in and say, look, I understand what's going on here, right? You know, I can help you, you know, or I can guide you, whatever. And what, what you find is that your life becomes full of a lot more positive interactions, if that makes sense. So I think that's really good. And those, those you know, if there was one thing I could say to anybody, you know, whether you're in academia or work or whatever, try and separate confrontation from conflict. If you can make that segregation, you are going to be a way happier person. You're going to have better relation, working relationships, better life relationships. But even more importantly, in, in the world of work or academia, you're going to have way more, way, way more productive teams and more productive work, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. Um, it makes a huge amount of sense. And I, and I think that a lot of people will take a lot of, uh, a lot of heart from that because you are right. We don't often take time to go back and actually reflect on, on ourselves and, and how we approach how we approach different scenarios. Um, unfortunately, I think we are out of time now. Um, but I just wanted to say, John, thank you so much for um, for for joining me today. The whole conversation has been fascinating, um, and um, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, if you just wanted to, uh, I'd just like to say um, you can pick up John's uh, book, Coaching for Cultural Transformation. Um, wherever you wherever you decide to get your your books and titles from preferably from McGraw Hill um, education website but you know not too not too fast on that um, he's also the founder of team coaching boutique and uh, I definitely would listen out for his sweet spot safari podcast we've mentioned uh, finding things in the sweet spots a couple of times during this conversation and funnily enough that's actually the the folks of the podcast finding two opposite ends of the spectrum of thinking and finding that sweet spot in the middle so um, John Thank you. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us on Blender today. 
Thank you, Wes. It's been an absolute pleasure.